0: Hello, I'm Susan Gordon, and you're listening to The Culture Boar, where I joyfully fall down rabbit holes lined with books, poems, and art. Today's rabbit hole is a stone's throw from Tower Bridge in London. Inside, a story set in the city, the traditions, the tropes, and why it's okay to think differently. From Oliver Twist, a taxi driver, the city has been a catalyst, preparing a cast of villains, misfits, and innocents into the darkest recesses of its squirming belly. Here's one very well-known philosopher and writer. There's something distasteful about the very bustle of the streets, something that's abhorrent to human nature itself. The greater the number of people that are packed into a tiny space, the more repulsive and offensive becomes the brutal indifference. That was Frederick Engels and the condition of the working class in England in 1844. From there, we can draw a line all the way to HBO's industry, and it's Wall Street that makes the wharf. For women, a particular fate is only truly possible in a crowded, urban, anonymous place. Consider that most family-friendly and charming of musicals, My Fair Lady. In Covent Garden, Eliza, before her transformation, is warned that a gentleman is taking down notes about her. She fears he is a policeman, and she mistaken for a prostitute. I'm a good girl, I am, she says, already defiant, yet close to tears. In George Bernard Shaw's original text, Pygmalion, the phrase good girl appears throughout. Eliza herself uses it seven times in all. In I Capture the Castle, another classic and sweet-natured story, Rose threatens her family most memorably. It may interest you both to know that for some time now, I've been considering selling myself. If necessary, I shall go on the streets. I told her she couldn't go on the streets in the depths of Suffolk. But if Topaz will kindly lend me the fare to London... The trope is a collapse, or willing step, into the sex trade, and it appears again very recently in Edgar Wright's 2021 film, Last Night in Soho. In fiction, characters of all stripes journey to the city and from hope to disillusionment, or at least sober enlightenment. In non-fiction, the trials and opportunities of the city are more subtle, and for children, yet more subtle again. The contemporary memoirist and former politician Alan Johnson recalls South West London in This Boy. A wistfulness patters in whether he wishes for it or not. Johnson writes about Kensington Gardens, where as children they were sent to play. He says the many summer hours were a highlight of his childhood. The audiences of Punch and Judy were more gentle there too. The children had instructions. Do not talk to strangers, stay together, and shelter in the museums if it rains. In other nonfiction, the grown-ups are rushing from one commitment to another with careers as doctors or academics or barristers, all generally playing out in the cities. Yet there is always time for loneliness, an emotion fluid enough to slide into the narrowest cracks. The Lonely City, published in 2016, chronicles Oliver Lang's time living alone in New York. The city, it seems, cannot offer quite enough to sustain someone. It becomes aspirational to leave it. A life outside the city becomes a quietly held dream, a dream helpfully choreographed by reality TV. There is escape to the country, Serebini's new life in the country. There is no appetite, it seems, for a new life in E15. This may be the product of an urban and London-centric media, hot desking and daydreaming in equal measure. These shows are about interiors, property, gardens, and a rose garden overlooking a green hill is highly photogenic. The city has its own beauty. I imagine Wordsworth making a study of dawn as it lights the Thames. Alone on a silent bridge, he is scribbling on the pages of a notebook. He refines those scribbles at his desk. The result is composed upon Westminster Bridge. An excerpt Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of salt who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth, like a garment, wear the beauty of the morning silent, bare, ships, towers domes, theatres and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. I check his impressions made two centuries ago against mine. It's a reconciliation, an exercise, not as such for shared feeling. Do we still have ships? A few. Towers? Yes. Domes and temples? Yes. The ships feel like the biggest loss, in her book, The Brother Gardeners, historian Andrea Wolfe describes the terms at a much earlier time, the 1700s. She writes, The stretch of river between London Bridge and the Tower was the main harbour of London, and more than 2,000 vessels, besides barges, wherries and ferries, created a forest of ships. Later, the ships were not only commercial, they were filled with convicts as prisons on land reached capacity. At the same time, politicians debated the wisdom of transportation and the establishment of new colonies in Australia. It was the spirit of the Romantics that their work was the fullest expression of feeling. Verse was the place to record a kind of cerebral overwhelm. Yet Wordsworth documents the city without too much adornment. The architecture is sketched in. When he says the city will wear the beauty of the morning, he acknowledges that just a few hours later it will look different. Raymond Williams was a socialist writer and professor of drama at Cambridge in the 70s. This spotlight on Westminster Bridge is recorded in his book, the country and the city. It's a detailed examination of how classic writers have treated the two domains. He identifies with the sentiment expressed by H. G. Wells that the city's biggest monuments represented power and opposition. Williams writes I know this feeling, but I find I do not say, There is your city, your great bourgeois monument. Or I do not only say that, I say also, This is what men have built, so often magnificently, and it is not everything then possible? Indeed, this sense of possibility of meeting and movement is a permanent element of my sense of cities. It's this sense of possibility which, I believe, makes a city so enthralling. It is not always used for naivety that's so powerfully shown by the greatest characters in literature to allow for it. It's actually essential. It's what has us applying for a new job, meeting someone new, trying a new class, or even just going to a park or theatre for the first time. Possibilities exist in two dimensions, extending one way towards darkness, another towards light. It is our energy and spirit which makes them three-dimensional. To imagine a possibility, allow for its existence, is not foolish. It's how we plan. It's how we prepare. The city makes our capacity to imagine important. It accelerates the imagination, asking it to go further. So even if we imagine ourselves somewhere else, we always come back to the city. Thank you for listening and please do join me next time as we go into the woods with the culture bore.